Welcome to Legal AF. We are still on Trump indictment watch here on Legal AF. The Manhattan criminal grand jury did not meet last week as was expected. They are expected to meet this upcoming week. What was the reason for the delay? What will happen this upcoming week? We will discuss. Donald Trump continued to threaten Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg this week, calling Alvin Bragg an animal, human scum, a devil, an anarchist. And Trump posted a photo of himself that he later removed, depicting himself hitting Alvin Bragg with a baseball bat, in addition to other posts of Trump telling his followers, quote, you aren't going to take it anymore, calling for death and destruction if charges are brought and questioning why people should be peaceful if he is criminally indicted. He has not deleted those other posts. Is this another crime and will there be consequences? Also, a big week for special counsel Jack Smith in the federal criminal investigations into Trump's election interference and into Trump's theft of thousands of government records and obstruction of justice. Special counsel Jack Smith won some major court battles that could spell very big trouble for Donald Trump. We'll discuss and noting Donald Trump's despicable behavior, the New York federal judge in E. Jean Carroll's civil rape and defamation lawsuit set to go to trial on April 25th next month, took the rare step, which is usually reserved for mafia leaders or cartel leaders like El Chapo, of ordering an anonymous jury in the civil case where Donald Trump is a civil defendant. What does this mean? What are the implications? We will break it down here. Also, Donald Trump's playbook of delay, delay, delay was exposed and rejected in New York by Judge Arthur Angoran this week in the civil fraud lawsuit brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, where the New York AG's office is seeking at least $250 million in damages and injunctive relief, which would effectively put the Trump organization out of business in New York. Justice Arthur Angoran said the current trial date of October 2nd, 2023 is etched in stone, which is a major blow for Donald Trump. We will discuss what took place at the hearing, including the fact that there was a bomb threat that temporarily delayed uh, that hearing and a number of actual threats taking place as Donald Trump continues to threaten uh, the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney and all these prosecutors. This is Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by my co-host Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. You have all three of us here today, at least on the first segment where we break down what's going on in Manhattan. Michael Popak, great to see you. Great to see you. We we are so pleased to have Karen with us for the first one. She's once again, I believe, jumping off to do some national media tour later this morning, but exclusive on Legal AF is our co-anchor and friend, Karen Friedman-Ignifilo. Karen, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? We're doing great. Always a pleasure on Legal AF when we get the full group of us together and when we can get your incredible insight. So let's just get into it, Karen. First and foremost, what happened in Manhattan this week? 
So this week, we know on Monday that Bob Costello testified on behalf of Donald Trump. And we were waiting to see what would happen Wednesday and Thursday to see whether or not uh, they would charge the grand jury, which means tell them what the law is, and then ask them to vote. But that didn't happen. And so what's happening right now in Manhattan is whatever Bob Costello said, it wasn't a big surprise because, you know, all really the, what he was saying was that Michael Cohen is somebody who uh, can't be trusted. He's a liar, you know, basically maligning Michael Cohen. But, you know, Michael Cohen was known to the district attorney's office. They know about his prior convictions and they know about his prior inconsistent statements. And so that was no surprise. But to the extent that there was anything that he said that resonated with the grand jurors, the DA's office is going to seriously consider the possibility of putting in what's called a rebuttal witness or somebody who can rebut some of the uh, specific things that um, Bob Costello said. Now, they're weighing whether they need it or not, because if he didn't make any big dent to their case, then you don't need to put someone in. But if he did, or they think it's something that's important to, to shore up, then they will put someone in. And who knows, it could be Michael Cohen again, or it could be someone else who can corroborate Michael Cohen, which I think would be uh, the, the, the most um, powerful and impactful uh, type of testimony. The other thing they could do is put in evidence that would um, show who Bob Costello is, right? And we all we know that he is very much connected to Trump and Giuliani, and he was all over the Mueller report. So you know, he th there are many different things that the DA's office will be weighing whether or not to um, present to the grand jury. Now they meet on Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and it's a special grand jury, which means you uh, it's a long-term investigation, and um, there's always uh, one or two special grand juries going on at the DA's office. That is not unusual uh, because the Manhattan DA's office does lots of long-term investigations that wouldn't fit into a normal grand jury, which sits for two or four weeks usually. So when you ask for a special grand jury, you what you do is you apply to the court and you you create you ask the court to order you know a, a new special grand jury and you'll say it's for four months or six months or eighteen months whatever you think you need for your case and normally it'll be for one or two or three cases that will be specified or, or investigations is a better way of putting it than cases uh, that you specify in the order because sometimes these investigations don't result in charges. Sometimes Sometimes they, you gather information, you investigate a case, and you determine, you know what, although I thought there was a crime, there isn't a crime. So these special grand juries go on for, for long periods of time and hear more than one case. And that is what appears to be going on there uh, as well. Not unusual. Again, like I said, that's business as usual. And you know, to those who thought that, well, the grand jury didn't meet, they were called off. Is that strange? What's going on? Are they having cold feet? These are all the th you know, the grand jury by its nature, by law, is a secret proceeding. And so these are the things that go on every day at the DA's office that no one knows about and no one hears about. So although it looks unus unusual to the viewers who see why, why didn't they call the grand jury? Why did they call it off? You know, all, all the questions. It actually is not unusual to have these things happen. You know, for example, you might have uh, a rebuttal witness that you wanted to call on Wednesday, but that person was 
unavailable Wednesday and they weren't available till the next week. So you would not bring the grand jurors in for no reason. And you would say, okay, you don't need to come in. So that's what's been happening this week. In addition um, to that, we know that the Manhattan DA's office is coordinating with law enforcement about when would be a safe time to have Donald Trump surrender because there are lots of considerations, right? There's the Secret Service. They have will have opinions about how and when to bring Donald Trump into New York City, into the criminal courts building, and into court. Uh, and so, so they will. They and and of course, Donald Trump has a schedule, right? He's in Waco, Texas, this weekend, having a rally, raising millions of dollars off of this, uh, um, off of Alvin Bragg and all of the other criminal investigations that that he is under, and so. Uh, and so, so his schedule matters. The court's schedule matters. You ask the court, "What are good days for you?" And and of course, NYPD, FBI, and the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, and the court officers will also be involved in determining what is the safest way and the safest day and time to bring Donald Trump in. Because you know. This isn't the first high-profile person that has come into the DA's office, and the, or I should say, has been surrendered into the DA's office and been arrested. And there are many ways you can quietly bring someone in and keep them safe. You know, there is a proverbial back door to the office. But Donald Trump is going to make sure that he perp walks himself, right? No one else is going to do a perp walk. He's going to make sure he perp walks himself into the office and makes a big stink of it. And he will absolutely use this as a media stunt. So the law enforcement knows this. They're going to take that into consideration and they're going to come up with a tact plan or a tactical plan, frankly, you know, the, the, the way they do when, when they're going to go out and, and arrest, a, you know, a big, a big, you know, mafia boss or something or a drug dealer, you know, they, have a, they come up with a tack plan, they're gonna have to have a tack plan on how to deal with Donald Trump with all different law enforcement considerations, they're gonna have traffic considerations, they're gonna block off streets, you know, so that the, the, the motorcade, you know, is able to get from point A to point B, they're gonna have, they're, it's gonna be scripted down to the most minute detail, where he's gonna come from, what the route is gonna be, they will, like I said, they will block off streets, they will make sure, you know, they might even close down the, the FDR drive so that there are no other cars in his motorcade when he comes comes by because they're worried about his safety. I mean, you just never know because that's and, and the NYPD knows how to do this because we have dignitaries and you know heads of state come to New York all the time because the United Nations is located physically in Manhattan. So we have kings and, and presidents and prime ministers from all over the world and the NYPD and, and all of that law enforcement, they know how to do it. They keep everybody safe. They get you know sitting presidents who come to, to New York, they get them in and out safely. So they can easily do this, but they are planning, right? It's a, it, it's a coordinated plan. And so one of the things that is happening, Alvin Bragg, as the head chief law enforcement officer in Manhattan, he is coordinating with law enforcement to um, to determine when is the safest day to bring the indictment, because you want that indictment to be as close as possible to the surrender date so that Donald Trump doesn't have too much time to whip up 
violence, chaos, destruction, which he is clearly trying to do. And so that takes us to where we are now, which is Donald Trump crossed a bright line this week. He has gone from his First Amendment right to free speech, which we all have. You have the First Amendment right to say whatever you want, essentially, until it crosses the line from speech to action. It crosses the line from speech to conduct. And that is what Donald Trump has done. He has, he has now entered the realm of criminal conduct through his speech. So he did two things that put him over the line to me. And this is where I jumped into prosecutor mode again. I, it's amazing how, how easy you can slip right back into, okay, you know, this guy committed a crime and, and let's figure out which one it is. He committed, so he, what hey, he Karen, did was- before Karen, before, before you go in there, I just want to remind all of our new viewers about your background being the former number two at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. You worked as a DA in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for basically 30 years, and you were, and sometimes even the acting Manhattan District Attorney there, essentially the, the top position in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and you supervised essentially all of the lawyers there. So when you're talking right now about the charging decisions that you would make if you were in that office, I just want everyone to know that context. I'll throw it back to you. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, look, it's it's very much, like I said, you know, as a prosecutor, you're used to, you know, defendants who who are who act like trapped, you know, tra a trapped animal who's panicked and they lash out, right? That happens all the time. They say terrible things, they do terrible things, and you know that that will happen. But at a certain point, it 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 crosses a line from speech to conduct and and that's what Donald Trump did this week and he did it by doing uh two things so number 1 he posted a, a picture of him holding a baseball bat next to Alvin Bragg's head okay there is no doubt what he is doing there and what he is showing there okay he is essentially threatening Alvin Bragg with a baseball hat and what will his followers what will they what will they see that is they will see that as a call to action they will see that as a call to action to to commit violence against Alvin Bragg he also called him an animal he called Alvin Bragg an animal which is a in my opinion uh, it's very it's a racist comment where he's trying to whip up his white supremacist followers to kind of say, you know, look, look at this black animal over here. We can't let him do this to you. And that's what he always does. He throws it back to them. He's like, they are trying to prevent you from having your president and they are trying to put you in jail and hold you, account. you know, they're trying, they, he, he does that. And, and it's an us versus them. And by calling Alvin Bragg an animal to me, again, that is just more of his call to action, call to violence to individuals. But what really put it over the edge was when you couple both of these things with his with his truth social post, where he said, uh, he, he literally said that, um, that, that by bringing this case, that you know there was that known that potential 
death and destruction in such a false charge could be catastrophic for our country. That is his way of calling for violence. That is his signal to say, cause death and destruction. He could just as easily have said, you know what? I can take this. This is a bullshit charge. I can take it like a man. I will go in and I will fight this like a man in court the way everybody else does, right? <laughs> Instead, he yep. is he is terrified and he is a coward. And so what does he want? He wants his he wants to whip his people up into death and destruction. And it's that language that has crossed over to a crime. And I think there are three potential crimes that he's committed. Unfortunately, they're only misdemeanors at this point, which I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I had to ask all my my, uh, you know, my 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 smart wizards, you know, legal wizards that I ask, and they all agree there's only misdemeanors, but there are three potential misdemeanors. And I, and, and to me, the clearest one that he has committed is something called aggravated harassment in the first degree. And that's in violation of penal law section 240.30 subdivision one. And that reads, uh, that reads basically that you, um, communicate, hold on, let me get the language up here. Um, 240.30 subdivision one means that when you communicate with the person, um, you, it's likely to cause annoyance or alarm. And clearly that is what he has done here. Uh, he's causing annoyance and alarm, right? So that's to me a clear, um, a clear, uh, violation of that statute. But the statute that I like the most for this is inciting a riot in violation of New York penal law section 240.08. And a person is guilty of inciting a riot when he urges 10 or more people to engage in tumultuous and violent conduct of a kind likely to create public alarm. And, and my, the reason I think this is a good charge is, is um, there's a concept in the law called Molyneux. And, um, and that is something that normally when, when you bring evidence of a crime, you're not allowed to bring in evidence of other bad, uh, bad acts that you've committed or other uncharged or charged crimes, because, you know, the defense attorney would say that would just, you're using that to show that he has a propensity to commit a crime. And, um, and, you know, obviously that can be overly prejudicial, right? That can be overly prejudicial because just because you did it before didn't mean, doesn't mean you did it here. And so most of the time you cannot bring in prior bad acts evidence unless it's to show motive or intent or um, or modus operandi, you know, like the same MO, you know, similar pattern. You know, there are different exceptions to that. And that's what the Molyneux rule is. It allows you to, and it, that's based on a case, um, you know, where, where Molyneux is the name of the case. And so that that that's why it's called that. And it's M-O-L-I-N-E-A-U-X or something that's spelled like that for anyone who wants to look it up. And, and so, and so I would argue that I would try to Molyneux in Jan 6, okay, because there he could have easily called for peaceful protesting, but he didn't, right? He instead, you know, brought everyone on the, um, 
he brought everyone on the ellipse and you know he told everyone to come and march and you know there and and it will be crazy and you know, all the language he used there that was a clear you know stand by you know stand back and stand by all the language that he uses that is a clear indication to his followers to incite violence. He knows what his words do. And I would use that against him to show his intent. I would use that to show his intent. When he said there will be death and destruction, he intends to send a signal to his followers to create mayhem. And that is that is what I think he's doing here. And so that is the second crime that I would want to use. And again, like I said, I would use Jan 6 as um, evidence of that. And then the third crime that I, uh, that I think is a possibility here is uh, Penal Law Section 195.05, obstructing governmental administration in the second degree. And I want to give um, Professor Popak credit for coming up with this one. He, he came up with this one uh, yesterday and he said, what about this crime? And I I, I, I dismissed it pretty quickly, um, saying no, because that's not when it's usually charged. When it's it's usually charged when people because the law requires some kind of physical action, you know. Like so, if you're if you've got protesters, um, peaceful protesters, for example, who refuse to leave a particular area and just sit down, you know, the law is it won't let you won't let you charge those individuals. They have to actually fight back or or handcuff themselves. They have to do some kind of physical action to be charged. And so at first I thought that doesn't apply here because, because Donald Trump didn't, um, didn't do anything physical, but then I reread it and it says, you know, obstruction governmental administration in the second degree, um, when he intentionally obstructs or perverts the administration of law or other governmental function, um, or prevent, attempts to prevent a public servant from performing an official duty like Alvin Bragg from bringing a case by means of intimidation. And, and I would argue, you know, Popak, you're right that this is by means of intimidation. So I think, I think you can, you can try that one. It's not as clean in my opinion as the other two, but I do think there's an argument there. Now, whether or not the DA's office will charge any of these misdemeanors. So I'll tell you exactly what's going through their mind right now. First of all, number one, it's argue, they're arguably not joinable on the indictment of the Stormy Daniels case because they are separate. So you'd have to bring that separately. So they are considering that, right? Is it worth it? Is it worth arresting him for misdemeanors in addition to these felonies. Now, I would say yes, but they're going to make that calculation about whether or not they think, you know, it's worth it. The other thing, uh, because like I said, they're not joinable, you know, or, or they'd be severable if they were joined, you could sever them. Um, but the other thing they're, they're thinking about, like I said, is, is it worth it? You know, is it worth bringing these misdemeanors? Again, I would say yes, it is, um, but we will see. But I guarantee based on this conduct, they are considering it right now. And that's what that's what they are doing. It also goes to why they are considering bringing the indictment much closer in time uh, to when the surrender is, because you want to, you have to factor public safety into this, you know, not, not that they're being intimidated or bullied, but they have an obligation to protect protect the American people and to protect, you know, because who knows where the, where he's going to create mayhem. It could be in Florida, right? He could, 
He could say, you know, I'm surrendering. I'll, of course, I'll agree to surrender. Hopefully, wink, wink, you know, all my followers, hopefully you won't prevent me from doing that, right? But he already, he's already the whole discussion of creating a moat around Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure he would love to have all his people around him saying, I would come in, I would cooperate, but these patriots, these wonderful Americans who are patriotic, you know, they, they don't want their president, you know, to be dragged into New York where, you know, where that animal is going to, you know, lawlessly prosecute me. And so, and I'm sure I could see him dragging it out for, you know, a period of time. It's, is it a coincidence that he's in Waco, Texas this weekend where the Branch Davidians, you know, were in a standoff with the FBI, refused to come out? You know, he loves that. He loves that kind of thing. He's thinking about that at Mar-a-Lago for when he's going to say that he's surrendering, but that they won't let him. And by the way, if he says he's going to surrender, that he wants to muck up the whole, you know, the whole like extradition. There is no coincidence to me that he's in Waco this weekend. He wants to remind people of, you know, what it's like to fight back and, you know, stand your ground because that's who Donald Trump is. And Karen, it's not a coincidence that the Republicans held a hearing attacking the ATF right before Donald Trump went to Waco as well this week. I think that was all coordinated. So um, unequivocally, it sounds like the- You reminded me of one other thing. Can I just say really quick? I don't want to interrupt, but I do have to leave. Um, Really quick, the other thing that happened this week is um, the House uh, Republicans sent a letter to Alvin Bragg um, basically saying, we're going to hold a hearing. You must come in and we want a hearing about this case and any other federal funding uh, that that you you have, which, and and Alvin Bragg's excellent general counsel, Leslie Dubeck, wrote a a three-page letter um, basically telling them that this is unprecedented, this is lawless, you have no right. You know, first of all, there's a concept called federalism. You have no right to come and ask us about what we are doing here. And this is a pending case and it's uh, a political stunt. And so so they're fighting back hard on that, which they should. It is unprecedented. You, There is no, they don't, they don't, DOJ doesn't come in and talk about pending investigations or pending cases. That is not appropriate. And that is not an appropriate separation of powers. And it actually could jeopardize a case. So that's the other Karen, thing that's- Karen. And if you're leading, if you're leading the office, you would charge Donald Trump for these additional crimes. One hundred percent. You know Popak? what? Because, because you have to make you have to stop this madness. He, you, it's 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 one thing to you know to to disagree about issues, right? But when it, when you are creating, when you are inciting violence, which is exactly what he's doing here, and threatening a prosecutor, the rule of law matters. Committing a crime matters. And and at a certain point, you have to, enough is enough. This has become normalized. We have become, you know, I I listen to, you know, political political commentators who I actually really respect, who are going on some of some of these, you know, these these news shows saying, why this case? Why is this case going? It's not that serious. You know, the other cases are more serious. Yes, the other cases are more serious than the Stormy Daniels case. But think about it. How can anyone say this is not a serious case? This case, okay, when you think about it, why did he pay Stormy Daniels off and then hide it? Because it was the first time he tried to influence a presidential election, right? He tried later, four years later, on Jan 6, and with the with um, 
you know, with, with find me 11,780 votes and, and trying to stop Pence from counting the electoral votes. And, you know, that was the, that was a more obvious time when he tried to influence the election, you know, but the first time he tried to influence a presidential election was when he made these payments. Number two, make no mistake. He made 11 payments where they falsified business records. He wrote in there that it was for a legal retainer, which it was not. He did that while sitting in the Oval Office. We had a sitting president committing a crime 11 times that we know of, right? While he was trying to be president of the United States, committing a crime. And he says, because I didn't want Melania to find out. Well, I'm sorry, when was the last time Melania Trump looked at the books and records of the Trump organization to see what payments were being made? That is a ridiculous defense. So anyone who tries to say this is not a serious case, in my opinion, this is an extremely serious case and it is worth bringing, it needs to be brought and he needs to be stopped and held accountable for his violent, irresponsible actions. And Karen, you charge him for the threats as well. In addition to the Stormy Daniels felony, you'd also charge him for the threats that we've been talking about with his posts? Yes, I would. All right. I got to hear from Popak's take. Popak has been anxiously waiting to share his take. We will share Popak's take right after these messages. And thank you so much, Karen Freeman-Agnifilo, for sharing with us your truly excellent expertise. There's no one in the world who knows more than you about this topic and also letting us know what your decision would be when you were leading that office. We'll be right back after these quick messages. This is Michael Popak from Legal AF. If you're like me, you understand the pains of choosing what to wear. Let's face it, most clothes are uncomfortable or too tight or are never actually the size you really are. Not to mention the annoyance of trying to put a good outfit together. And when you do have a good fit, you can only wear it for a few hours before you have an important meeting or dinner. And then you got to change all over again. Everyone wants to dress the best and look good at all times because, frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man. And here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, one-quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work, to your 18 holes of golf. It's time to feel confident without the hassle. With Roan's wrinkle release technology, wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products. It's that easy. And with its gold fusion anti-odor technology, you'll be smelling fresh and clean all day long. And on top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can ditch the dry cleaner altogether. I absolutely love Roan. As you can see, this has truly become my go-to commuter fit and on the Legal AF podcast recordings. We're on the move a lot, whether it's jumping from meeting to meeting or catching a flight or an important dinner. The Roan Commuter Collection has never let me down. The versatility and comfort of the collection is undefeated. Even after I wear it all day, I still feel super fresh because of that Gold Fusion anti-odor technology. The Commuter Collection can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com slash legalaf and use promo code legalaf to save 20% on your entire order. That's 20% on your entire order when you head to r-h-o-n-e slash legalaf, promo code legalaf. Find your corner office. Michael Popak. Doing it. Michael Popak with the... 
with the read. So, Popak, I want to hear your take on what's going on in the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation, the grand jury, specifically also, though, about Donald Trump's recent threats and if you think those constitute crimes. And then why don't we just hear from you go right after that, because it's been a big week for special counsel Jack Smith in the federal investigation. So would want to have your take on both, Popak. Yeah, let's start with the with the Manhattan DA. You've got a a a criminal future criminal defendant in Donald Trump who has become virtually unhinged on social media. Let's just remind everybody. He frequently attacks judges. He's attacked Beryl Howell, who we're going to talk about next in the DC Circuit Court. Um, he's attacked Judge Angoron, who we're going to talk about with the New York Attorney General case. He's attacked Judge Middlebrooks in Miami, who ruled against him and fined him in a, in a series of cases he brought against Hillary Clinton. He He's attacked Judge Carter in the Central District of California, who found it was more likely than not that he committed a crime, as Judge, Howell, as Judge uh, Beryl Howell also has. He's attacked jurors and, and grand jurors in Georgia, He's attacked jurors in the Stone, uh, Michael Stone, uh, 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 Stone investigation and prosecution. He's gone after the Department of Justice and attacked Jack Smith, Merrick Garland, Mueller before them. And he's gone after prosecutors and other people in law enforcement like Letitia James, Phony Willis, and now Alvin Bragg. And I agree with, that's a long list, and I agree with our co-anchor, Karen, at some point, it crosses the line when he chose in his social media to take a photo of him. I think it's a real photo of him swinging a baseball bat when he was in the White House and putting it directly next to Alvin Bragg's head in the context. And there it is in the context and in the stream of his other posts in which he used racist tropes that are straight out of Birth of a Nation, straight out of you know probably the most virulent movie ever made <laughs> a birth of a nation when you call a black um prosecutor a degenerate sociopath those are code words that are usually used against black men historically um when he when he ties him to george soros in an anti-semitic attack also saying that he's a soros back people are mimicking donald trump like desantis they don't even understand what they are mimicking and the vocabulary that they are using. It is racist. It is anti-Semitic. It's an attempt to create, uh, to call Alvin Bragg the other in order to justify him be being beaten and attacked. And Alvin Bragg got an assassination letter with a white powder in it two days ago. That is That is one that we've heard about. I'm sure there are others. And when we first saw this this article that Salty, our producer, was putting up here, we only heard about the powder and a quote-unquote threat. We know now the threat was an assassination threat to kill him, to kill Alvin Bragg. This will not be the first. New York City and the NYPD is on high alert from, from last week all the way through the coming week where we think the indictment is finally going to come out about Donald Trump. Donald Trump continues to have his social media backfire on him and used by judges and prosecutors against him. Um, and he has no one to blame but himself. We're going to talk about Judge Kaplan, 
in making a decision to keep the jury anonymous for their own protection in the E. Jean Carroll case. That's based on social media posts that even predated the one that we're showing here about his uh, his uh, proposed attack on Alvin Bragg with a baseball bat. That was based on other things that he said earlier in the week about the indictment that the federal judge pointed to as the rationale for having an anonymous jury. So when you tie all this together, this attempt to let's just call it for what it is, lynch a black man who is a prosecutor. And that's the other thing. Most of the prosecutors and law enforcement he goes after happen to be black. And to give himself cover for doing so, he calls them racist, of course, not understanding how racism works, calls them racist because they're going after him, I guess, because he's a white Republican former president, as opposed to somebody who commits crimes. So I agree with Karen. I don't think, you know, it's going to take a lot of gumption for Alvin Bragg to look the other way and allow this line crossing, as Karen called it, with the baseball bat next to his head. Because it's not just Donald Trump now. It's Donald Trump in the future. It's others worse than Donald Trump that think they can get away with threatening law enforcement on the front page of their social media and get away with it. It rises to the level of crime. It's now going to be up to Alvin Bragg to decide whether, in addition to Stormy Daniels, he's going to take on Donald Trump and the MAGA world and charge a crime that just got committed. So that's where we are. I think everything else we've covered. Ben, what else do you got to say about Manhattan DA? and what's That happening? those posts made by Donald Trump uh, that we've just talked about on social media, I think can also be used by special counsel Jack Smith in the election interference case. Now, when we're talking about the January 6th insurrection, what took place on January 6th, when Donald Trump tries to say, oh, I, I never said death and destruction, you can now point to these other posts as well as part of a pattern and practice of what he was actually calling for as well. So I think in addition to potentially now being another crime that can be charged by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, this is an exhibit that's going to be used by Special Counsel Jack Smith. And Special Counsel Jack Smith is on the proverbial roll week after week after week winning major court battles. And so I want to hear from you about some of these major court battles that Jack Smith was in, some of the major court victories uh, that he had. It's been a busy week for Jack Smith, Popak. Yeah, it's been a tremendously uh, productive week, um, blowing all giant holes in the battleship of Donald Trump's defense and his likely indictment by Jack Smith in at least one, if not all three, grand juries. Beryl Howell is the gift that keeps on giving, even in her final days of being, literally final day at her seven-year term of being the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court overseeing all things grand jury. She gave, um, she didn't give, Jack Smith earned, I want to rephrase that, um, Jack Smith and the Department of Justice earned major victories about key witnesses that are now going to be, or already have as of this recording today on Saturday, testified, brought back to the grand jury, provided documents and continued uh, more evidence against Donald Trump. Let's start with Evan Corcoran. M. Evan Corcoran is up to his eyeballs in possible criminal prosecution himself. But on the issue of whether he can use the attorney-client privilege to prevent testimony, that was answered um, earlier, uh, was answered on Thursday by, well, it was answered on Tuesday, the prior week by Beryl Howell, 
um, she ruled that not only does the attorney-client privilege not protect him, and he has to testify before the grand jury about everything related, we think, to Mar-a-Lago and the subpoena and the discussions Evan Corcoran had with the Department of Justice and the lies that were told to the Department of Justice and the FBI about the extent of the classified documents that were hidden at Mar-a-Lago um, and all of that, and him being M. M. Evan Corcoran being the boss of Christina Bob, who signed a fraudulent statement to the Department of Justice, testifying that there were only 36 classified documents that existed and they were all in that envelope, knowing or should have known that there was 100 more behind at least one locked door or unlocked door at Mar-a-Lago. He, he, he gave her the directions related to that. So we had a very, very quick, it was a microwave rapid fire um, day and a half from Beryl Howell's order to an appeal to the uh, briefing related to the appeal, the parties submitting their papers, and then an ultimate ruling by a three-judge panel of the D.C. Court of Appeals, three democratically appointed um, judges, two were appointed by Biden, one was appointed by Obama, and they set a very quick briefing schedule, like Department of Justice, you've got you know, or, or Trump, you've got seven hours. Department of Justice, you've got nine hours. And then they ruled six hours later. The whole thing was done in almost less than 24 hours. And it was not, it was against Donald Trump. And it upheld the trial court, in this case, the um, Beryl Howell's decision, that, that it was more likely than not. In other words, there was prima facie proof that Donald Trump committed a crime related to the Mar-a-Lago documents, both stretching back to his initial discussions with the National Archive for Presidential Records, which the judge said was the beginning of the scheme, the criminal scheme led by Donald Trump, all the way to how he either duped his own lawyers or they were willing participants in a criminal conspiracy about the documents and the subpoena negotiations that we all know what happened when those subpoena negotiations went awry and the Department of Justice and FBI realized that they were that they were being duped by Donald Trump and his lawyers because they had other witnesses and they had video testimony video evidence they then got the search warrant and executed that last August so all of that that decision by Beryl Howell that it was more likely than not that Donald Trump committed a crime the second time a federal judge so far has said that it was more likely than not that Donald Trump committed a crime Judge Carter, a year ago, said that Trump and John Eastman, the architect of the whole fake elector uh, scheme, likely also committed a crime in stripping the attorney-client privilege away from John Eastman when he was producing documents to the Jan 6 committee. Now you got Beryl Howell saying, same thing here with Mar-a-Lago, and it's Donald Trump. Now, she didn't, apparently, based on the reporting, again, secret hearings because secret grand jury, she, it, we're not sure that she took a position as to whether Corcoran was duped as the lawyer or was a willing participant making him a target. But either way, I thought, and I did a hot take on this one, that based on Trump's track record and his blueprint, that he was going to try to take an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court after he lost at the D.C. Circuit Court on on Thursday. I, I if you if I was a betting man, I would have bet dollars to donuts that he was going to do that. And he did not. So here's another another uh, interesting moment where Donald Trump's legal team decides we're not even going to go to the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that we all believe 
at least on non-presidential records things, is in his pocket that the right-wing MAGA on the on the Supreme Court rule in his favor more, more times than not on key issues. But even they, the lawyers for Donald Trump, said this is going to be a dead-on-arrival um, appeal to John Roberts, who would be the first judge that would have to deal with this as the as the circuit judge over the D.C. Circuit as a chief also, judge. Also, Popak, if Trump were to lose that, it doesn't fit his narrative. His narrative <laughs> is you've got a D.C. Circuit Court gone rogue. you got these D.C. federal judges who are ruling against me. He knows he would that we know that's not true. We know that yeah. it's that he's violating but, the law. He'd lose in front of the Supreme Court. And let's remember, he's not pursuing normal defenses that people who are in these situations would. He's posting photos of himself with baseball bats, depicting himself bludgeoning a prosecutor. Yeah. His his defense is to try to create another insurrection. Toss that, it back to that, you. That may, that may be, but it's still inconsistent with his delay strategy because he would have at least got another two or three weeks. What, what happened instead is that Evan Corcoran went in and testified on Friday for three and a half hours along with his lawyers. Sometimes Evan Corcoran is in court representing Donald Trump the same week that he's giving testimony, presumably against Donald Trump. This is the world Donald Trump now lives in. Sometimes his lawyers are testifying against him in front of the grand jury with no attorney-client privilege to protect them. And sometimes they're actually making appearances in court. But that wasn't the only interesting thing about the grand jury this week. It The uh, Tim Parlator, who's another lawyer that we've talked about in the past, that apparently voluntarily went into the grand jury in December, although we're just learning about it now. He went he went in front of a podium when Corcoran was being uh, deposed, apparently because he got pushed in front of it by the uh, by the Trump Republicans. Like, hey, we we need to distract from the fact that Corcoran's testifying. Go go do go do a press conference. And Parlator said, "Oh, I went in in December uh, because there the reason he went in is because." There needed to be a records custodian for all things in all Trump locations, Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster Golf Course, uh, a presidential office at West Palm Beach. Apparently, there's no there's no records custodian. There's like no one person that's responsible for all those records on purpose. And so Tim Parlator volunteered to be the records custodian to tell the grand jury and ultimately the judge about the search that was done in all of these places. Remember that there were two more even after they said everything was taken out of Mar-a-Lago and that's it, we're done. They found two more classified documents. And Tim Parlator is the one that testified that sometimes Donald Trump used as a uh, uh, to cover a nightlight, to cover his clock in, in, his, in his bedroom, a uh, evening briefing classified document folder. We, that's where we learned it from. But now Parlator is on the attack. And Parlator obviously in a script written by the people around Donald Trump, said that he he thinks that the, the Department of Justice is committing prosecutorial misconduct the way he was treated in the grand jury. They tried to get around attorney-client privilege and acting like it didn't matter. And you know, to, to Tim Parlator, who nobody ever heard of before you and I started talking about him on the Midas Touch Network, all of a sudden he's the great uh, he's the great commenter on all things Department of Justice. It's obvious that that was done to uh, run interference while Corcoran gave the real testimony for three and a half hours in front of 
the grand jury. Now, that's not the only bad ruling for Donald Trump that came out last week. We're getting it a little bit spoon-fed to us, it drips and drabs. Some people might say, well, if it happened last week, why are we just hearing about it now? Because again, secret proceedings, and we're getting reporting based on you know people talking to people involved. And what now has come out is that another Beryl Howell final moments ruling before she Uh, before she left the position as chief judge. Don't worry, she's still a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court. She's still handling cases like the Giuliani defamation case uh, brought by the two Georgia election workers, a mother and daughter. Um, She's still a judge. She just stepped down from being chief judge, and Jeb Boesberg stepped into the position, um, also a democratically appointed judge. So I don't think we have much to worry about there. But the last rulings that she made also were that um, a whole list of others in the West Wing are also going to be required to testify. And she stripped away all of their executive privilege. So Mark Meadows, who we haven't heard from lately, and you and I speculated might be cooperating with the DOJ anyway, who did not testify to the Jan 6 committee putting up executive privilege, although he did curiously give them thousands of text messages before he stopped cooperating with them. Now, so he's, his testimony's never been heard from. So, so the Department of Justice was able to get Beryl Howell to force Mark Meadows to go back to the, to go into the grand jury for the first time, now stripped of executive privilege. Now, he might put up Fifth Amendment privilege because he was involved with a crime like burning documents in his office fireplace. But, Mark, we're going to hear for the first time from one Mark Meadows, but that's not all. We're going to hear from Dan Scavino, the deputy chief of staff. He's been forced now to go into the grand jury without executive privilege. Stephen Miller, one of my favorite enemy types within the Donald Trump group, who who was responsible for many of his most... um, Uh, racist, misogynist policies. Stephen Miller, also chief spokesperson, he's going to be going in without executive privilege. And Ken Cuccinelli, the acting deputy, you know, Homeland Security person is going to, uh, director, is going to go in as well. So you got this long list of people that are now going to be paraded before the grand jury giving testimony because of this ruling by Beryl Howell. The last one that you and I covered, but yet there's no, there's no, um, wasn't able to get wrapped up under Beryl Howell's tenure is Mike Pence. Mike Pence continues to argue that he he's covered by either speech and debate immunity because he stands there with the gavel for a few minutes while he asks the clerk of the House and the Senate to give him the electoral count, and therefore he's a make-believe senator that has speech and debate. But nobody cares about what happened on the floor at that moment. They only care about all the other stuff when he was vice president and dealing with Donald Trump and almost getting hanged. So that's not covered by immunity. But that fight over speech and debate, which I think is a dead-bang loser, based on prior rulings, including the Northern District of Georgia about uh, about um, uh, Lindsey Graham and all of that. That's going to be decided by Jeb Boesberg, who you and I are now going to talk a lot about, like we used to talk about Beryl Howell, because he's the new chief judge as of, I think, Monday of the um, of the D.C. Circuit Court. So he's now responsible and takes over on all of those grand juries. So his decision about Mike Pence is the one that you and I are going to follow. You know, the very interesting thing that's going to happen with Mark Meadows, and I get, he, here's my prediction. 
Mark Meadows is going to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Then Jack Smith and his team are going to have a very important decision to make there. Are you going to give Mark Meadows derivative use immunity? Um, and I think ultimately they are going to decide to give Meadows immunity the same way they gave Cash Patel this derivative use immunity, which basically just means you can't uh, tr uh, charge them uh, with crimes based on the testimony that they provide before uh, the grand jury. If you have independent sources um, and independent leave from the uh, testimony, you can uh, still charge them with those crimes, but you can't charge them based on things they say or things that are derived from it. Of course, if they commit perjury, you can still charge them there. But that is what I predict is ultimately going to happen uh, over the next few weeks or within the next 60 days or so. And when we make these predictions, it's not just like I'm wildly you know, uh, at random, just, just saying things like you see sometimes on the large media networks. My basis for that is that Mark Meadows invoked the Fifth Amendment in the Fawny Willis special grand jury. Uh, so I assume he's going to follow suit now before the federal uh, criminal grand jury in Washington, D.C. and do the same thing. And then special counsel Jack Smith, who already has a treasure trove of messages from Mark Meadows, will probably make the decision What's the downside of giving derivative immunity here? We already have the independent basis to charge him with crimes anyway. And so let's compel the testimony and force him not to invoke his Fifth Amendment right. But we'll be able to roll back this tape on a future legal AF when I think that prediction will be accurate. But we will see. And I still want to talk, of course, about this anonymous jury in the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation trial, which is set to go to trial April 20th. 25th. There's been a lot of bad reporting on the E. Jean trial case, on the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Many people think this case is not going to trial. It is. It's just the first defamation case isn't, but the second defamation case and the civil rape case is going to trial on April 25th. And then Donald Trump's big loss before Justice Arthur Ngoron in the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit seeking at least $250 million in damages. We'll break that down right after this quick break. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. Look, everyone knows how annoying cheap razors are. The cuts, the irritation, the frustration. And don't get me started with subscription razor services, the headaches that those can cause. That's why you got to meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that has made parts for the ISS. That's the International Space Station and Mars Rover. And now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. Razor blades, they're like diving boards. The longer the board, the more wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. A bad shave, it isn't a blade problem. It's an extension problem. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. 
It gets better. The razor has built-in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. Seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard dual-edge blades to give you that old-school shave with the benefits of new-school tech. Once you own a Henson razor, it's only about three to five dollars per year to replace the blades. My first shave with the Henson razor was incredibly refreshing. The design is sleek and the durability is top notch. The Henson razor is truly so much better than your run of the mill quote unquote traditional razor brand. And the affordability factor is absolutely game changing. No more wasting your money on expensive blades. With Henson shaving, you can get a year of blades for just $5. Okay, so this is what you have to do. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash legalaf to pick up the razor for you and use our code LEGALAF and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash LEGALAF and use code LEGALAF. And now back to the video. We are back here live on the weekend edition of Legal AF. Earlier in the show, we were joined by Karen Friedman Agnifilo, the former uh, number two at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Now it's me and Popak. We've been breaking down topics such as the Manhattan District Attorney's criminal investigation. We've talked about updates in the special counsel Jack Smith, multiple criminal investigations and big wins there. Uh, this civil defamation and civil rape trial uh, brought by E. Jean Carroll is going to trial on April 25th, uh, to use the term by Justice and Goron, who's not the federal judge in that case, is the judge in the New York State case. But I like in Goron's term, come hell or high water, or it's etched in stone, seems to also apply here to this federal uh, case uh, brought by E. Jean Carroll. Uh, and the federal judge there, not in Goron, it's Judge Lewis Kaplan from the Southern District of New York, made a uh, rare ruling. Um, I'd say it's it's big implications, but also rare ordering an anonymous jury. Popak, what does this mean? Why did he order an anonymous jury? Yeah, we thought it was bad last week when the judge was considering whether to do the anonymous jury, which he did on his own. This was not by either side. This was the judge looking around the social media world, knowing the defendant that he had in front of him, knowing all the list of things that you know I did with you in the in the first segment, all the people uh, and law enforcement, for instance, that Donald Trump has attacked um, often violently in language on his social media, knowing that, not having blinders on to who's in front of him, right? Justice is blind, ultimately, but but the judge isn't, and he knows who he's dealing with. And so he said, you know what, I got an idea. It's unusual, but I think we should keep the jury. It's uh, their professions, their addresses, their identities, um, anonymous for their own protection. What do you guys think? Turning it over to the lawyers. Um, and neither, this was interesting that, that came out after the reporting, neither Trump's lawyers, who apparently is either Alina Haba 
and or what I've now referred to as the translucent Joe Tacopina, because he's nowhere to be found. I can't see the guy. He's only on media. He's never he's never on anything that he files in the case. They file in the case for Donald Trump in this particular case for E. Jean Carroll's civil rape case. You don't see Joe Tacopina's name, although the order that came out with Judge Kaplan I'm going to talk about next did have Joe Tacopina's name on it. But those lawyers did not object. I would have. I would have at least tried to argue that it was unnecessary, that it was tainting the defense before they even stepped into the room, that it was putting into the mind of the jury that this was a bad guy and all of that. By the way, he is a bad guy. The jury does need to be protected, but I'm trying to make the argument for Donald Trump's lawyers. They didn't even make that argument. In fact, the only entities that opposed the judge's a request for information about whether he should or shouldn't order the anonymous jury were two media entities, including Associated Press. So they were the only ones that said, no, we want to know who the jurors are. The rest, you know, sort of laid down. Now you'd think maybe, maybe, maybe what Trump's lawyers, and I may be getting, giving them too much credit here, Ben, is that they didn't want an order from Judge Kaplan attacking their client before it even began. But if that was their thought, that's not what happened. So the judge entered his ruling, finding that there were proper grounds for an anonymous jury. And when he wrote his order, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from it. He says right in the first line of his order that Donald J. Trump is accused in this and a closely related civil case of having raped E. Jean Carroll in the mid-1990s and making public statements about that. Now, that's how it started. The order didn't get any better for Donald Trump as it went on, because it talked about his own conduct, especially in social media, in which he has um, attacked judges, jurors, and others. So here's a judge that his people, the law clerks around him and himself, have um, gone and done their research to quote Judge Kaplan in his order. It bears mention that Mr. Trump repeatedly has attacked courts, judges, various law enforcement officials, and other public officials, and even individual jurors in other matters, dropping a footnote to cross-reference all of that. Now, I'll remind everybody, that order that came out was before the Alvin Bragg baseball bat late night series of truth social tweets or whatever they are. So this is even before that. This would only reinforce and strengthen the judge's hands. So after going over all the bad things and misconduct that Donald Trump has done as the rationale for having an anonymous uh, jury, the judge then set the conditions. And this jury, Ben, is going to be well protected by the U.S. Marshal Service. They are going to move as a group from their from the courtroom to the deliberation room where they hang out for a bit to lunch together, all under the watchful eye of the U.S. Uh, U.S. Marshal, to their cars or their modes of transportation, together, protected, with like vans. So th even though they're not going to be sequestered, which means the jury's not going to be put up in a hotel with, with, um, with no contact to the outside world, they're going to go home to their families and friends every night, but they are going to be protected, which I want to hear it from you, Ben. What do you think that does to the jury's psyche? I've dealt with juries for a long time. What do you think it does to the jury's psyche that they're being told that for your own protection, and they will be told this, they are going to be anonymous as to their professions, 
to their identity and otherwise from the moment they are selected and have to decide whether Donald Trump raped E. Jean Carroll. What do you think that does to their psyche? I think they will very quickly understand the seriousness and solemnity of the job which they have been picked to do. Um, I think they will obviously uh, have questions already in their mind. Well, this must be a very dangerous person if we're being provided this protection. And I'll just say this, why I think Donald Trump ultimately was okay with an anonymous jury. I think what he's hoping for is that there is a runaway juror, um, that there may be some Trumper who makes their way on this jury and where that could normally be found, perhaps on someone's social media, if you know the identities of the jurors. I think what Trump's hoping for with an anonymous jury is maybe it's not appropriately filtered during the voir dire jury selection process. In addition to your take, Popak, which is I think they wanted to avoid the bad order. But that's why I think Trump was ultimately okay with the anonymous jury as well. But I think the jurors are going to have very serious questions about Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's behavior or the behavior of any defendant in a case like that, where they have to be protected for their own safety. And by the way, not only is this very rare in criminal cases, this is a civil lawsuit for, for defamation. It, it, it's almost, I'll have to go and look back if this has ever happened in a civil defamation case before, but I would venture to it, guess it never if has. it has, it, it, it probably never has. <laughs> <laughs> now, let, let, me, let me mention one thing based, based on your, and I agree with you on the runaway jurors. This is not a criminal case. A lot of people are questioning me. In social media, like, isn't rape criminal? Why aren't we in why aren't we in criminal court or a criminal process? Because the statute of limitations in New York ran on the criminal side. It's been extended now, but it doesn't help E. Jean Carroll because of when she claimed she was raped. But she did get the benefit of a new Adult Survivors Act statute passed by Governor Hochul, who which gave a one-year window to anyone who was claims that they were sexually assaulted or abused who are now adults to be able to file a claim against their perpetrator. But you don't need in a civil case, civil federal case, a unanimous jury the way you do in federal criminal. So he'd need more than one runaway juror because this is civil. She just has to get the vast majority of the jurors to go along with her uh, with her case as presented by Roberta Kaplan. And you and I are going to have to follow um, who is going to be, I mean, I'm still... Um, uh, questioning in my own mind, who is going to be the lead lawyer that's going to show up on the 25th of April, which is less than a month away, who's going to do the opening, who's going to do the jury selection, which is very important even in federal court. We call it the voir dire process for Donald Trump. And who is going to cross-examine E. Jean Carroll for the Trump side? Is it a lead? It's got, it can't, it, right now, there's no chance for another lawyer. For a while there, I thought maybe they'd bring in like somebody else. So it's got to be Joe Tacopina, should he decide to walk into the courtroom, uh, or Alina Haba. You think it's Alina Haba that's going to try, is going to be the lead trial lawyer in this case? I, I still think they'd try to bring in another lawyer to really? parachute in last minute, whether it's Jim Trustee or Christopher Keis, the only people who are actually kind of real lawyers on the team. 
I hadn't really known much about Takapina, and he kind of proved that Mark Twain expression correct, which is, you know, better to be thought of a fool than open your mouth and uh, remove all doubt, because that was just uh, one of the more bizarre media tours I've seen. But Takapina, I think, would be worse than Haba. Haba definitely... Haba doesn't know how to try a case. Like right. at the most fundamental level, she doesn't even know how to do a trial like this. And, and frankly, I'm not sure Takapina does, to be honest. That's right. um, and you've got a very well-experienced team in Roberta Kaplan's team. So um, it's going to be interesting, that case. And of course, we'll be covering it here on Legal AF. And then Popak, we got to get to, though, um, this topic because, uh, you know, Donald Trump's delay, delay, delay strategy here was rejected by Justice Arthur and Goron in New York State Court. This is in New York Attorney General Letitia James civil lawsuit seeking at least $250 million, million in damages. This could be in the billions of dollars in damages when all is said and done. There's also an injunctive relief component of this case, which would effectively stop the Trump organization, Donald Trump and his adult children from ever doing business again in the state of New York, which could effectively stop the Trump organization from doing business uh, period. Uh, and uh, th this case has was filed in September of 2022. So for those basically saying these cases take a really long time, I've never seen ever in New York, a case in Popak, you're from the New, New York. I've never seen a case uh, move this quickly from a September uh, uh, filing to a October uh, 2023 uh, trial. I, I, was, I was in court on um, Friday in the same courthouse, 60 Center Street, where Judge Angoron sits in the business court. It's actually the court that Donald Trump wanted to be in for whatever reason. Although we'll talk about Angoron, I think, giving him a poke back in his ruling about which court he's in. But there is a business division or a commercial part. And I was there for a settlement conference with a judge. By the way, this this building is empty post-COVID. If, if there were two other trial uh, uh, trial attorneys on the whole entire floor I was on, I'd be surprised at that moment. But having said that, um, uh, you know, there is <laughs> there is just no way this would go this fast. That case I was there on was filed in 18, 2018, and it is not likely to go to trial until 2024 at the earliest. That's fast. There are, there's cases that are set for trial 10 years after they're filed in New York. We're talking months here, seven and eight months. I mean, Trish James, Tish James um, listed for the judge in her one of her letters that they produced in just that short amount of time from the time that the case was filed. We talked a lot about the case before it was a case because as the New York Attorney General supervised by Judge Angoron, she was doing her investigation and making frequent reports about whether she was gonna ultimately file a civil fraud case. That's why some people might think, well, you guys have been talking about this for like even longer than that. It wasn't a case then. It was an investigation supervised by Angoron. Didn't stop Trump from going to federal court and all different appellate courts to try to stop the investigation. Again, racist attacks on on um, uh, Letitia James. But the filing of the case till now to trial is like eight months. And she said in her recent letter that the New York Attorney General provided 56 witness transcripts to the other side and 1.7 million documents that they've had for over seven or eight months, comprised of tens of 
tens of millions of pages of documents. So that means we're ready to go. When you're the plaintiff and, and, and Ben, you and I are plaintiff's lawyers on occasion, the, the thing we love to say and puts a chill down the defense team's uh, spine is when the judge says, are you ready for trial? And the plaintiff says, ready. And Letitia James is ready and the judge is ready. And now kicking and screaming, the defense is going to have to be ready. Again, Alina Haba, I think this time joined by Chris Keis. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, here, delay, delay, delay. Trump's team sought a six-month delay here. Um, previously, Justice Arthur Ngoron said, come hell or high water, this case is going to trial October 2nd of 2023. What uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James did an excellent job here at doing, the moment she filed this lawsuit back in September of 2022, she warned the judge exactly what Donald Trump was going to do. She said, look, judge, this is a case where there doesn't need to be any delay because all of the records that are relevant here are records that Donald Trump has. It's records Trump and Trump's adult children and the Trump organization created. It's their statement of financial conditions. It's their appraisals. It's their valuations. And by the way, during the special proceeding when Letitia James uh, questioned Donald Trump in a deposition. Donald Trump invoked the Fifth Amendment over 400 times, which is an adverse inference in a case like this, in a civil case. Uh, invoking the Fifth is not an adverse inference in criminal cases. You can't even bring it up in a criminal case that a defendant is invoking the Fifth Amendment. That would violate their constitutional rights. But in a civil case, New York Attorney General Letitia James Ken and already has when she filed a preliminary injunction, and she will when there's a jury, say, look, Donald Trump had the opportunity to answer very basic questions. He's a braggadocious person who wants to tell everyone how big his properties are and what his valuations are and how much money he has. Well, we brought him in. This is what she'll say to the, dep what she'll say to the jury in closing arguments. Well, we brought him in for a deposition and we ask the most basic questions, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And, and if you are innocent, these are kind of questions you'd, you'd answer, right? So we asked them, what's the valuation of Mar-a-Lago? What's the valuation of Bedminster? What's the valuation of Trump Tower? What's the valuation of these uh, apartment complexes that you own? What was the appraised value? Can you explain the difference between the appraised value and the valuations? And what did you tell this taxing authority? What did you tell this insurance company? What did you tell this lender? And for each and every question, Donald Trump raised his hand and invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, from that, you can infer adversely against Donald Trump that the reason he didn't want to answer is if he answered the question, he would be admitting to the conduct that we are accusing him of here in this lawsuit. And you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, can make that finding because he refused to answer that he engaged in that wrongful conduct. Remember that. So I think the closing argument is going to go I like that. I think that's that. the opening. That's also the opening. He can do it. She can do it in opening as well. Yeah, although and then, and then close perhaps it. not as argumentative as, yeah. I, as I did it, but for sure do it in the opening. But here, Justice Arthur and Goron says, it shall be etched in stone. That the trial date will but, be October. But my 6th. favorite, my favorite Angoran, you did it on your on one of your podcasts already before this one, 
is his comment. It was a dig at Donald Trump, and it was just a turn of a phrase that you and I both both tickled us. The, the, the jab at Donald Trump in his order saying, F that, you're going to try. I told you you're going to trial in February. You're going to trial October 2nd, and I don't want to hear another thing about it. You've had plenty of time to do all the, you know, all the witnesses you wanted to depose and all the documents you wanted to review. What were you doing for the last seven months or eight months? So no. And he said, look, this case, this is the judge now. He said, this case is complex, but it's not complicated. And then he outlined the case and he said, as as, as Rabbi Hillel once said, the, all, all the rest is commentary. And the complex comment was a direct dig at Donald Trump, because I know people that know Angoron, and he's got a sense of humor, because Donald Trump has always argued, including in social media posts, I'm in the wrong court. I'm not supposed to be with Judge Angoron. I'm supposed to be in business court, in business complex court, which is what he's always asked. And here is Angoron telling him, yeah, this case might be complex, but it's not complicated. And the rest is just commentary. Well, I, and, I love, and, and I love then, this guy having quoting, fun with his job. Yeah. yeah, and then quoting Rabbi Hillel because nothing yeah. probably sets Donald Trump more off than like a, a Jewish so. Talmudic scholar. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was it was it was a good good dig. But folks, yeah. that's what we have for you this week. Another busy week in our courts. Another week though where the wheels of justice move in the right direction. I think we all had thought this week we'd probably get more of a substantive update on what was taking place within the Manhattan District Attorney Grand Jury's deliberative process. And while there was some big updates there, the bigger updates actually came from Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation, the E. Jean Carroll order, what took place in uh, Justice Arthur and Goran's court in the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit, and Donald Trump not knowing the law of holes because he just, he just keeps on digging and digging and digging with these posts where he likely committed more crimes. And I think it was a real uh, important thing to have Karen Friedman Agnifilo, our midweek co-host on one of the main co-hosts of Legal AF, to speak to the fact that she previously was one of the main leaders of the Manhattan DA's office. She would have charged Donald Trump uh, uh, on these uh, additional uh, counts for his threats that he made. want to thank everybody for watching this week's episode of Legal AF. We are marching to 1 million subscribers here on the Midas Touch Network. We may just hit it this weekend. So please hit the subscribe button. Help us get to 1 million in the month of March. Please do this as well. Wherever you get your audio podcasts, um, also download and subscribe to Legal AF on your audio podcast device. That goes a long way to help the growth of this show. So if you're just a YouTube live watcher of this or you just watch these on YouTube, please, please, it's very helpful. Please go to your audio podcast device and subscribe to Legal AF there. If you are just an audio listener, please go on the YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And another major way you help this show is by sharing it with friends, family, coworkers, colleagues, anybody you know. 
post links to the show on any social media accounts that you have. Email it to anybody that you know. This spreads word of mouth because this isn't some sterile network. This is a movement, a movement led by the legal AFers out there. You're the reason that this show's growth has been exponential over this past year. None of this is possible without you and Michael Popak, myself, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, the whole team here at the Midas Touch Network is so grateful to you and the great work that you all do. Also, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch, and also store.midastouch.com for the best pro-democracy gear. That's store.midastouch.com. And we've got the treason season, indictment season shirts as well. Go to store.midastouch.com. Popak, final word, and then send us out to the Midas Mighty. I don't have much power and authority, but it would be a a personal um, it, it would be a personal thing to me if the Midas Touch Network hit its one million off of our weekend and our show. That would be I would be a gift that I would appreciate. Love it, Popak. Thank you all. Love you all out there who watch and listen to Legal AF and who support and follow the Midas Touch Network. Thank you all for watching this weekend's edition of Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Mighty.